April 22, 2022. That's the date. And this is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, biomarkers in PSA, diet in PSA, good news for OA and bad news for pregabalin. But let's talk about another triple DMARD therapy. An open label trial looked to compare triple DMARD therapy, methotrexate, sulfazalazine, and hydroxyquin, hydroxychloroquine to the same except substituting leflunamide for sulfazalazine. Now, you know, there's combination trials of methotrexate and leflunamide that look really, really good. I know I was an author on the paper. I think that's a really, really good combination. Uh, and many have advocated for triple DMARD therapy. So this triple DMARD that has methotrexate, leflunamide, hydroxychloroquine, I'm wondering, does it even need the hydroxychloroquine? But nonetheless, an open-label, randomized control trial of either MSH versus MLH, the L is leflunamide, the S is sulfasalazine, in 136 RA patients, and it was shown that both were equally effective at six months, meaning that the MLH was not inferior to the MSH with uh, ULAR good responses of 62 and 65%, not significant, significant at week 24. AEs were about the same, so not surprisingly, MLH was shown to be equally effective to MSH, and I like it. I'm just wondering whether or not you even need the H part of the triple D Martin. Maybe you do just as well with methotrexate and leflunamide at standard doses. No, you don't have more LFTs, and no, you don't have more GI symptoms when you use that combination. That's been my experience over the years. Um, a Taiwan claims data looked at the efficacy or the utility of hydroxychloroquine in new onset lupus patients in delaying or preventing the future development of chronic kidney disease. What? I never knew that this was even a thought, but there are some guidelines and suggestions out there that all patients with lupus nephritis should always be on hydroxychloroquine because they're just going to have less flares, less renal flares. Some have said less end-stage renal disease or even less death. We do know that hydroxychloroquine does lead to less death in lupus patients. But this Taiwan, Taiwan claims data with 2,000 new incident lupus patients without CKD followed them over a 14-year period and basically showed no protective benefit of hydroxychloroquine as far as the low incident rate of concurrent CKD that happened over a 14-year period. So, yeah, it's always good to have hydroxychloroquine on, on board. I guess you can't expect everything from this drug. And in this case, maybe it doesn't prevent future kidney disease in your lupus patients. Um, pregabalin is a drug that we use commonly. Recently, we've kind of slammed it uh, for its utility in fibromyalgia, where in real-world experience, it doesn't seem like it works all that well. Well, a UK drug safety warning came out this past week. That's the United Kingdom. Um, and their data uh, about pregabalin and its potential to cause fetal malformations was observed in an observational data set of 2,700 pregnancies who had exposure to pregabalin, meaning Lyrica. What they found was first trimester exposure was associated with a higher rate of congenital malformations. In their study, it was 
5.9% versus 4.1%. Again, you don't you don't usually see data like this, so it's hard to describe the the statistical significance to this. The in we don't often have a control population that's not exposed to whatever intervention you're looking at. And the historic background rate of congenital malformations in a general population is three to six percent. This these numbers are within that range. So is this really higher? Well, it probably should be taken as such because even the U.S. Um, package insert, the product label, talks about the potential for fetal harm uh, uh, when using Lyrica in pregnancy. And the warning does say that it may cause fetal harm, largely based on animal data. You know, these days, if you read the package insert looking for pregnancy data, you're going to read pages and pages of everything ever reported. That's the new LLR um LRPR? I can't remember. It's the new labeling um, for pregnancy-related adverse events with drugs uh, and where they just give you all the details and it's just a beating to read. But if you go through it with Lyrica, there is an issue there. So the bottom line here is you probably don't want to be exposing women who are going to get pregnant or who are pregnant to pregabalin. Treat to target. I was recently involved in a debate with Alvin Wells at RWCS about whether treat-to-target should be, actually it wasn't Alvin, it was um, Marty Bergman. And it was a really good debate. Um, uh, I was assigned the side that says that, that said that treat-to-target is not effective. And what I came up with when I looked at all the data was that treat-to-target works really good in treat-to-target trials. But that the real-world evidence that treat-to-target is truly effective is kind of scant and confused and not always consistent. And that's one reason is because of you. All of you say that you do treat the target, but in fact, you measure some things, but you often don't even use it in your decision-making because your decision-making is always so multifactorial. You're not going to make it based on one SDI or rapid three measure, you're going to make it based on everything. So ultimately, you really don't practice treat to target. Well, in this particular uh, Chinese study, they had two cohorts, 100 patients in a treat to target cohort called Centra, C E N T R A, and 271 patients receiving usual rheumatology care called Tara. Uh, and at the end of 12 months, the Centra to T group has significantly lower SDI scores. That's the Simplified Disease Activity Index of Smolin et al. 2.1 versus 3.4. That was significant and more SDI defined remissions. Uh, 71% versus 49%. Again, significant to P less than 001. Uh, a good example of where a treat to target may work. And it may take... People who are very regimented and follow the rules, thank you, our Chinese rheumatologist colleagues, for doing that because most of the rest of the world can't seem to do that well enough. There are biosimilars out there. We're not using much of them, but as we hit closer to 2023, 2024, 2025, you're going to see a lot of restrictions on biosimilars being lifted, especially for etanercept and adalimumab. Um, and interestingly, um, uh, Amgen's been very active in the biosimilar development. They uh, reported the results of their ABP654, that's a eustachinumab biosimilar. As you know, eustachinumab is a monoclonal antibody against IL-12 and 23. 
Um, and in, they have a study. It's a 563 patient um, psoriatic plaque, or, uh, plaque psoriasis patients, moderate to severe disease. Phase 3 trials showing when you compare the biosimilar of ustekinumab to actual ustekinumab, no significant difference with regard to posse outcomes, suggesting that it's within the goalposts, it is not inferior, and no clinically meaningful differences. It will be approved as a biosimilar. Now, when it gets used and at what cost savings, who knows? Again, ustekinumab, uh, at least this biosimilar, is also being developed for use in Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Canakinumab made the news this past week with an 80-patient retrospective study of kids with systemic onset JIA, Stills disease, who received canakinumab. 12 of the 80 actually were patients who were on anakinra, doing well with clinically inactive disease, who were then transitioned to canakinumab and continued to do well. Encouraging. The other 58 patients, however, were newly diagnosed and newly treated systemic JIAs with canakinumab, and they achieved the clinically inactive disease CID status in only 57% at six months, 64% at 12 months. Um, good, but I kind of would have expected a higher rate. Hmm. Um, but that's what we see in a lot of other trials, do we not? Uh, mass did occur in a few patients such that the macrophage activation syndrome rate on canakinumab was about three per 100 patient years. Non-response was seen in those who had mass, uh, MAS, who those who had polyarthritis, meaning higher numbers of, of joints, and longer disease duration. So um, mass of really severe subset, not surprising. Polyarthritis, that's kind of interesting, is it not? Does that mean that anakinra instills may not be as effective at the joints as maybe an IL-6 inhibitor might be? Hmm. Again, we need to look at that in the future in other studies. Disease duration is not surprising. It usually means that they've had longer, more severe disease. Uh, two studies from the National Kidney Foundation, two different cohorts that were recently published at a big meeting, their big annual meeting, showed that gout occurs in CKD patients. Wait, stop the presses. This just in, are you kidding me? I'll actually reported this because of some of the numbers here that I think are telltale. What percentage of patients with CKD on dialysis gets gout? All right, get out your keypads, enter your answer right now. The true answer is 13.5%. If you look at all CKD patients by stage, two, three, four, five, you know, a high percentage ranging from 70, 17 to 28% uh, of stage um, three and four CKD, so that's about 20 to 28% will get gout. Interestingly, stage five um, gets less gout. Stage five on dialysis gets less gout. Um, gout patients with CKD have more bone or mineral disease, more CHF, more DJD, and shockingly, um, more than a third of these patients are not taking urate-lowering therapy, even though they have these episodes of gout and are at risk for gout, etc. Um, these are the people we need to worry about. Uh, we have an interesting uh, video that we posted this week as part of our therapeutic update on the future of psoriatic arthritis. Dr. Katie Leung 
from Singapore did a really interesting talk on biosimilar, I'm sorry, bio, biomarkers in psoriatic arthritis and really point out a number of things I did not know about. It's there, it's there just, these studies are just starting and they, she pointed out a number of different markers that are superior to CRP in monitoring and then also helping to choose therapy. Uh, at the same time, we have another report this week um, that I put up. It's a pilot study of uh, 81 patients that had sort of a test cohort, uh, a development cohort, and then a test cohort, total 81 patients. And they looked at the distinguishing ability of, of serum IL-22 levels in predicting therapy. And they had patients who were treated with either IL-17 or with TNF inhibitors. And what they showed was uh, retrospectively showed that um, IL-17 inhibitor patients um, who did well had low IL-22 levels, whereas the TNF responders um, with PSA tended to have high IL-22 levels. I think this is encouraging because once we get around to having biomarkers like this that have true predictive value, now you can make better than a flip of the coin decision on whether to treat with a TNF inhibitor, or in this case, an IL-17 inhibitor. We need more research like this. Administrative claims data on over 100,000 patients from British Columbia compared the safety of tramadol to non-steroidals and off the top of your head, which drug do you think would be safer? I think, I think we'd have sort of a split opinion here. Um, recent years, you know, almost nobody uses non-steroidals anymore. Um, and there was a modest amount of tramadol use, but even now tramadol has been sort of become the bad guy on the block because it's lumped in with all the other narcotics, although albeit this is a very weak narcotic. Anyway, in this um, large analysis, tramadol was associated with a lot of negative outcomes, including a higher rate of all-cause mortality, a hazard ratio of 1.2 to 1.5, more venous thromboembolic events. I found that surprising. Now, I can't think it's being related to the drug and it can't be related to inflammation, so it must be related to inactivity, related to pain. And tramadol's uh, a surrogate marker for that. That's my interpretation, not theirs. The hazard ratio there was 1.7. When they compared VTE rates for those on tramadol versus those on diclofenac. And they also had a higher rate of hip fractures with a hazard ratio of 1.6. Again, less and less tramadol being used these days. Uh, a nice study about diet, although it's a small study, 97 patients followed for 12 weeks. They either got a placebo diet. What is that? I, I, it's not ice cream, um, but it's a placebo diet. Um, those who had a hypocaloric diet um, with placebo, and then another group that had a hypocaloric plus um, um, fish oil pills um, and basically they showed that the hypocaloric intervention lowered disease activity significantly uh, and significantly lowered DASH-28 CRP levels and BASDI levels um, yet uh, that diet did not achieve weight loss so these changes in disease activity were uh, regardless of weight loss and I found that to be an interesting finding as you know there are studies out there in psoriatic arthritis where weight loss in itself um, is a way, uh, an effective way of treating psoriatic arthritis and lowers disease activity. But this says you may not even need to achieve weight loss, but that if you have 
um, a well-done hypocaloric diet that you can lower disease activity. I don't know if you saw it, but this past Tuesday, Tuesday Night Rheumatology, we had a panel, an expert panel discussion called Controversies in PSA. Where are my notes on this one? Um, it was a really impressive panel. I had, we had Christopher Richland, Daphne Gladman, Jose Scher, Joe Marola, Peter Nash. I threw a lot of questions at them. When do we use methotrexate? When do we use a primalas? Uh, how are we going to choose between IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors? Um, uh, what's preclinical um, PSA? Um, should hydroxychloroquine ever be used? Where are we with x-rays? And how do we measure success? These were all answered in a really dynamic, lively discussion that you can find on the Room Now channel. And you can also find it, we, we live streamed it. it. This is a first for us. We actually, um, it was a webinar that you were invited to, but if you didn't take the Zoom webinar invite, you could have watched this via live stream on Twitter or on YouTube or on LinkedIn. Next week when we do our, our last journal club on PSA on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern time, We'll be live streaming on Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn, or you can just watch us on Zoom if you got the invite and you can click on that. Our last it was a report was from yesterday in the New England Journal, um, Evusheld uh, as protective therapy in high-risk COVID-19 patients. You may know about Evusheld. It's a combination monoclonal antibody uh, directed against SARS-CoV-2. It's uh, tixagivimab and silgam. Silgivimab, um, um, given as a single injection, single uh, 300 milligram injection versus placebo. This was given to over 5,000 patients who were at risk for infection. To be enrolled in this study, you had to be someone who either, who was tested positive, who was um, either um, at risk for SARS-CoV-2 infection or at risk for a poor immune response to the COVID-19 vaccine, or both. So 5,000 placebo or active drug, and overall they showed an 80% protection or an 80% lower risk of developing SARS-CoV-2 um, if you were on the Evashield, the, the rate was 0.2% on Evashield, and 1.0% uh, if you were on the placebo. This is a product, uh, it's, its name right now is AZD7442. It's a product of AstraZeneca. There's another similar product that's in development in clinical trials. Um, and the question is, what does this mean? Now, the patients who got into this trial were people who were at risk. There was a high rate of comorbidities in these folks. As I said, they, they were infected. 3.6% um, were immunosuppressed or on immunosuppressives. And that's the part that you want to know about as a rheumatologist. So what does this mean? Let's, um, let's actually go to some of our um, caller questions that we have on Ask Kush Anything. Here's the first one that actually relates to this Evashield issue. Hi, my name is Kristen Hartz. I'm a rheumatologist in Des Moines, and I'm wondering kind of a nationally what your um, perception of has been as to who, uh, which patients to use Evusheld on the prophylaxis against coronavirus. 
it's been pretty clear that we need it for our rituximab patients and more than likely our cell sept patients. But what about Benlista? What about Arencia? Appreciate your input. Thanks, Kristen. Um, really good question. And um, there are no consensus guidelines on this right now, but I think you're tapping into who, those who are getting it. And um, remember, the enrollment criteria for this study would be patients who are at very high risk uh, if, they, uh, if they were to become infected with SARS-CoV-2 um, and people who are at high risk because they cannot amount an immune response to the antibody. So a few things about that. Clearly, the biggest risk group are patients with active disease, especially active autoimmune disease like lupus, myositis, vasculitis, who need to be on rituximab. They should get the rituximab, but you know they are not going to be able to get a really good immune response. But we've had reports, and we talked about this recently, that you can get a good immune response by boosting them and reboosting them and checking antibody titers. So you can get there. But if you're worried about it and, and the patient doesn't want to take it, you could use Evashield, right? And, and that would be the right population. And there are a number of patients that I've heard of around the country. I have not yet done this. And that's primarily because I don't have a lot of patients that have where rituximab has gotten in the way of COVID-19 prophylaxis and management. But there are patients out there like that. Uh, and, and this question has come up about Evashel. Should you be doing it with other B-cell inhibitors like Benlista? Um, I would if the patient were highly active because I think that uh, your patients are going to get COVID and not do well with COVID if they have active inflammatory disease, active autoimmune disease, uh, and they're on certain therapies. Mainly B-cell inhibitors, mainly steroids, especially at dose of 10 milligrams and above. And then it's a lot of argument about everything else. Cellcept in some studies looks like it could be a risk factor. In other studies, it looks like maybe the JAK inhibitors and maybe Orencia. But in my opinion, the JAK inhibitors and Orencia are not at high risk unless the patient's really highly active. So your lowest risk of COVID, COVID hospitalization is going to be in people who are well controlled, no matter what therapy you have, except for steroids and rituximab, in my opinion. Let's take another question. This one from uh, Dr. Chiman. Hello, Dr. Jack. My name is Chiman. I'm a rheumatologist. I have a patient with Badger disease. She is pregnant, 22-week gestational sac. She has severe vaginal ulcer, not responding to colgesin and prednisolone. Please, what is your opinion? Thank you. So Dr. Chiman asks about a patient who's pregnant with Bichette's. She's around 22 weeks, has not responded to colchicine or prednisolone. And the question is, what are the treatment options? So this is refractory Bichette's. Um, and I think here in the United States where we have FDA approval and the availability of a primalast, um, that would make a lot of sense. Now, you may not, where you live, have the uh, uh, access to a Primalast or a Tesla, as we call it here. Uh, the usual dose is 30 milligrams BID. There's no evidence that you're going to do better if you start using higher doses, because if you use higher doses, you're just going to have a whole lot more GI toxicity, mainly diarrhea. 
And the question is, if you don't have access to, um, to a Primalast, what could you use? Steroids, yes, uh, but steroids during pregnancy has its own inherent risks. Um, um, you know, premature delivery, you know, large birth weight child, um, also intrauterine growth retardation, um, uh, spontaneous abortions, I think I already mentioned, um, uh, uh, you know, maternal uh, diabetes, um, and a number of other, again, the complication rates with high-dose steroids are, are nasty during pregnancy. So avoiding prednisone would make sense. Um, on my list are IL-1 inhibitors and maybe JAK inhibitors. Um, I don't think there's a lot that, that can be made, uh, a case that can be made for either infliximab or, or rituximab. I cannot re recommend that. Prior to these recent new therapies, I used to use a lot of Dapsone. But Dapsone may not be a great drug either during pregnancy. So if you have access to an IL-1 inhibitor, either Anakinra or Canakinumab, that might be a good choice. And there is a, a little bit of use, but not a lot of reports, positive or negative, with JAKs. Bottom line is that Bichette's is a small vessel vasculitis mediated by neutrophils. So I'm looking for an anti-neutrophil effect. A lot of our immunosuppressives um, wouldn't really work here. And that's why, for instance, TNF inhibitors don't work in Bichette's. Um, there might be a case for high-dose infliximab for ocular Bichette's, but other than that, I wouldn't use a TNF inhibitor. I hope that helps you a little bit. Our last case, uh, this is Dr. Ganim. He's going to talk about uh, alveolar hemorrhage in lupus. Hi, my name is Naif Lohanen. I'm uh, working in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, King Saud Medical City. And my question is about uh, plasma exchange for a lupus patient presented with pulmonary hemorrhage. Is it indicated or not? And is there strong evidence uh, to use it? We know now that um, it's not that helpful for ankle vasculitis, but there are, uh, there are no enough studies to know if it's uh, useful for patients with uh, SLE. Thank you. All right, Naya, thank you very much. I'm going to start with actually going back to the last case of Bichette's because it applies to this case here. First rule here is make sure it's what you're dealing with. Um, that woman who has, you know, severe vaginal ulcers, they should be seen, of course, by the gynecologist cultured. And you should look for bizarro um, causes for vaginal ulcers before you start, you know, always blaming this on Bichette's. The same thing here, you know, um, alveolar hemorrhage is a horrible manifestation of SLE with a mortality rate anywhere from 25 to, I like 35% is my number. It can go as high as 50%, but there is a high mortality rate with alveolar hemorrhage in SLE. But you need to make sure that it's uh, from SLE. And that means excluding, um, you know, infection, um, uh, other forms of vasculitis, uh, other, you know, hematologic problems that would lead to bleeding. Um, let's not forget paragonomyosis, um, the parasitic infection that causes alveolar hemorrhage uh, in all patients, including lupus patients. But um, I have only one drug that I rely on with alveolar hemorrhage, and that is pulse steroids. When I reviewed this literature as a fellow, and then about 10 years later, um, when you looked at those who lived and died with uh, alveolar hemorrhage and lupus, maybe the only dividing factor was those who got 
early aggressive pulse steroids. Um, plasmapheresis has been used, has been advocated, has never been shown to really offer um, an advantage in the way of better survival. So I'm not against using it. You know, people who are about to, how, about to die, you're going to pull out all the stops. And that may include, you know, cytoxan and plasmapheresis and steroids. But um, in my review of the literature, to answer your question, I was kind of, I kind of confirmed that plasmapheresis is out there, but I wouldn't hang my hat on it. There were a lot of reports suggesting there might be utility to rituximab in these people. Problem is, I guess that would be for people who have ongoing alveolar hemorrhage, uh, and you can um, get rituximab into them right quick and hope that it's going to work in the next six weeks and that um, you can get long-term benefits from it. That might be another alternative. But for me, it's pulse steroids, a gram a day for at least three, maybe four, if I'm a neurologist, maybe even five days. That's it for this week on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Tune in next week. We're going to cover a lot more PSA in our final week of our PSA campaign, PSA All the Way. I hope you've enjoyed it. We have.